This is a YCF special. Alright, welcome to Your Church Friends Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Mirlich. And today we have a special guest. Uh, he's a renowned New Testament scholar. Uh, he's a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He's an author of many, many books, including A Fellowship of Difference, The Jesus Creed, The King Jesus Gospel, and one that helped me out tremendously uh, during our uh, first season when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. It, it was a uh, the story of God, the, your commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He's been pretty much on every Christian podcast and YouTube channel out there, except for ours, but that changes today. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Scott McKnight, or should I say Dr. Scott McKnight? Scott McKnight is fine, yeah. My students don't even call me that, but my students from the s- southern states like Texas, they call me Dr. McKnight. I was just at an event in Nashville, and they were all calling me Dr. McKnight, and I thought, oh, this is odd. Okay. <laughs> I teach at Northern Seminary, and this is uh, the end of my 40th year as a professor. Wow, congratulations. I'm closer to the end of my career than the beginning. Let's put it that way. Awesome. My wife does have a question for you, and I know the answer to this question, and I told her I would ask it even though she just consistently was arguing with me about it, but she wanted to know how does it feel to also have a number one hit song, and I told her that that's Brian McKnight, not Scott McKnight. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about Brian McKnight's music. Uh, I know of him. Uh, I think, I don't, I don't think I've ever listened to any of it. So, uh, it feels pretty good to uh, have a number one <laughs> hit song that you don't even know about. And I am not a musician. <laughs> I was going to say, knowing of him is a step beyond me. You just said Brian McKnight, and I went, I, I don't know what you're talking about, Chris or uh, Justine. First of all, I just want to say it's so such an honor to have you on the show back when well, me and Chris you. were just starting getting going with this. And we thought, man, what's a dream list of people that we can uh, have on? And you were one of the first names that I put out because when I read King Jesus Gospel, that just really transformed, you know, my view of, of looking at the gospel. You presented it yeah. in such a way um, that I'd never quite heard. You really expanded on it. And as we get into the podcast, I know we're going to be talking about your new book, Revelation for the Rest of Us. Um, but I wanted to start off with a personal question. Could you give an elevator pitch about the King Jesus gospel, just how you broadened out the gospel from it just being the soteriology about just personal salvation to the expanse that is the gospel that we find in Jesus? I know this is out of left field, but uh, it'd be a personal treat for me. The real question is whether Tom Wright was above me on your ideal list for people or below me. (laughs) Okay. Um, Murdoch, here's the question. Here's the issue. Why are we asking about an elevator pitch for the gospel? I think what happened is the um, reduction in formulaic categories of the gospel to a three-point or four-point summary statement was a part of an American pragmatism that took hold in the 20th century, early 20th century with revivalists. So I'm, I, I do want to say that, but yes, I think I can. And that is the elevator pitch, I guess I, I'm not thinking of it as, the elevator summary is that Jesus is Lord and we are called to submit to him and follow him. But uh, that's not much of a pitch. Uh, You'd have to try to persuade people that Jesus matters, and that is going to take maybe in the Sears Tower, whatever it's called, in Chicago where there's 100 floors, you've got time (laughs) to kind of explain some of these things. But uh, it would require describing who Jesus is and what he has accomplished before and, and what he's taught before spelling out what he can do for you. Rather than starting with the benefits, you can get this if you give your life to Jesus. You tell people about Jesus. You try to get people committed to Jesus, and then the benefits follow. Mm. I like that. Yeah, right on. Thank you for that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I remember somewhere in that book you were saying, I don't know why we think that we can explain all of this in a couple minutes. Where do we get that in our in yeah. our head that we should be able to explain it so short? That said, coming into the book of Revelation and your book on the book of Revelation, it, that was also a treat to read through. You did a lot of really cool things with it, um, which we'll get into as we discuss further. But right off the bat, I wanted to bring forth a few of our audience questions, because I think that that'll really set the stage, because a lot of our audience questions are the same things that most of us are thinking as we're getting into the book of Revelation, which is a lot of us have heard a lot of things about um Mm-hmm. What does all of this mean? What's going to happen in the future? And what are the particulars? So if I could sum up a, a few of the questions, and then you can hit on the points. But basically, people are thinking, is it post-millennial or pre-millennial? And what about the rapture and tribulation coming in there? Um, and then kind of bringing in a little bit of uh, what we see preterism, right? So is it pre or post 70 AD? What was going on in 70 AD as it relates to the book of Revelation? And a little bit of an interesting one there tying into 70 AD was, uh, did all of this stuff already happen? Uh, I think it was Josephus maybe said that they saw Jesus and returning on chariots in the clouds. I'm not sure if that was actually Josephus, but that's what our not question quite a, put not in there. quite that way, but yes, he had... He records that somebody had a vision like that, yeah, in Jerusalem. So you asked me about 12 questions there. So which one, what am I supposed to answer here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of questions. I was just trying to sum that up to, yeah, the, the ideas of yeah. pre and post-millennial and 70 AD. Maybe if you could just tackle that, those concepts. Categorizing one's eschatology by the millennium rigs the whole conversation before we even get started. And uh, I've, I've tried to show this to my students, that when you ask me, am I premillennial or postmillennial, I say, well, you've already decided that there's a millennium, and you've decided that that's the way to categorize how to read the book of Revelation. And I'm not so sure of a millennium the way people talk about it. Um, it's a very confusing text, and I got in a very interesting letter yesterday from um, a doctoral student of mine who was trying to figure out what to do. He says, I totally agree with what you're writing on Revelation. And he said, I love what Mike, uh, Mike Bird and Tom Wright do. And I suppose it's Tom a little bit in Surprised by Hope and, and in Mike and, and Tom's introduction to the New Testament. But they said, what do you, what do, you do with, the, with the millennium? It doesn't seem to fit anything. And, and I said, it's totally true that it doesn't fit anything. And, and the key thing to understand about the millennium is that there's only a text about the millennium one time in the entire Bible. Mm-hmm. You can add all the stuff from Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and pile them into millennium, but that's not what the millennium is actually. They're, they're not talking about a millennium in any way, shape, or form. So here's the thing about the millennium. What is said about the millennium, I'll I'll put this as a formula. What is said about the millennium in modern day discussions about the millennium is not in the only text about the millennium in Revelation 20. And what is in Revelation 20, the only text about the millennium in the Bible, is not in what people are talking about with the millennium. So we've got a a real uh, problem here is that there's a whole theology of the millennium built up in people's minds that has nothing to do with the only text that talks about it. It is for martyrs, and they will rule for a thousand years. You know, I don't know if you've ever read Josephus, but Josephus's numbers are never trustworthy, almost. <laughs> he gives numbers, and you go, what in the world? How did you count these numbers, you know? So a thousand in the book of Revelation, a book filled with symbols and bizarre imagery, and magical numbers should never be taken literally. So I tend to, I, I, don't, I don't believe they're in the millennium. So, and I, I would not call my position a millennial because a millennial actually has a millennial position. It's not, uh, you know, it, it's not that there is not a millennium, it's that they interpret the millennium as the age of the church. And I can go with that pretty far uh, as, as the best interpretation as a symbolic description of an in, of a long period of time, a perfect period of time, 
during which those who have been martyred are raised to the throne of God and they get to participate in the ruling of the world. Uh, that, that's how I'd look at it. Now, 70 AD, this is a problem, is dating the book of Revelation. And uh, probably neither one of you have been in my classes. I used to really be obsessed with dating books of the New Testament in my first 10 years as a professor. Well, during my doctoral days, because I thought then that I could map out how New Testament theology developed and all that stuff. But dating many of the books is a game that if you lock down on a date, you can suppose you're right and then build a theory. Mm -hmm. um, and none of the dates, almost none of the dates that we use are just airtight. Some of the Pauline letters are pretty clear. Like Romans, it's written somewhere in the mid, mid fifties. Okay, Galatians. Scholars disagree on this. I like the early date. Other people like a later date, about the same time as Romans was written. Uh, but where are, where are you going to date Titus? Titus doesn't fit in any chronology of the New Testament. You just can't tag it. And Revelation is another one of these problems. I think that the texts about the person who is alive and could come back to life. And I think that's about Nero and a story about Nero that he could come back to life or that he had disappeared, he's coming back to life. So I think it's after Nero, uh, and I think it is in the reign of Domitian. And uh, I just recently read again, well, I guess maybe the first time I skimmed it before, uh, Suetonius's life of Domitian in his Lives of the Twelve Caesars. And as I read it, I thought, yeah, Revelation fits in here pretty good, pretty good. But it's not an airtight argument. So I don't think the book of Revelation is written before 70 AD. I think it's written after 70 AD. And I would, I would anchor it into uh, the reign of Domitian, which puts me out of some of the hard-headed theories about preterism. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of them, they, they need the book of Revelation to date before 70. And a long time ago, in a former life, Star Wars type language, <laughs> I, um, I had a couple students at Trinity who were totally into this, into the dating. And they were preterists and they were theonomists and they had some really strange views. And uh, they thought that they could prove that Revelation was written before 70. And they loved it when Jen... J.A.T. Robinson wrote his book, Redating the New Testament, and he dated it early. And uh, over time, I just think the excitement about our capacity to date something firmly uh, has uh, dissipated for me. And uh, I try to read the book for what it says. And if I think I can date it, I'll connect it to that, but I will never base any of my interpretations on the date that I give. Have I answered some of those questions? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in your answering of that, you really set up how you approached writing your book, you know, that is not dependent on the millennium and, you know, pre or post 70 AD and what that is. Um, so I think Chris is going to take it from here to get into, well, what is in your book? One of my favorite things, especially with your book, um, was how you approached it because it, it came at Revelation from a different perspective. Uh I would say that I was a, a speculator before, <laughs> uh, maybe like three to four years ago. I, I grew up in the church my whole life, and uh, yeah. one of the scare tactics for me was uh, A Thief in the Night, uh, The Prodigal Planet, mm -hmm. those movies, uh, mm -hmm. even to the point where like one day my parents and my siblings all went to church without me, and I thought I was left behind. Uh, so I was like panicking <laughs> in the house. like that, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I was like I was nine years old. And I thought I got left behind. And then I was really upset because my brother and my dad got taken and not me. Um, <laughs> and then I started listening to uh, Murdoch uh, introduced me to it was Michael Heiser's podcast. And he started going through Revelation, but he was only um, using where John got it from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So there was no speculation. There was no Apache helicopters. There wasn't any of that. Um, and it just blew my mind and, and it opened it to see this book and not the scary monster that I think uh, you even talked about in the book where it's either uh, people go full into all the predictions or they run away from it and they never want to touch it again. Yeah, um, yes. and, and so 
with all that, setting up the question is like, really, what is the danger in speculation when we read uh, the book of Revelation? Um, what is the danger? Let's say, let's to start with this one, that it, um, um, it will lead to bad readings of the book of Revelation, because the, the book is apocalyptic literature, which in the first century could be called prophecy, but it's a, speci- a specific kind of prophetic literature called apocalyptic, which is full of images and metaphors that have plasticity and flexibility in their interpretation. So it will, it will lead away from that to specific ones. It, the second thing it does is it leads to this question all the time. Who in the modern world is doing what in the book of Revelation? Mm-hmm. So right now, it will lead to questions like, is Putin the Antichrist? That's what, what it does. Uh, it leads us to ask, who in the modern world is doing what in the Bible? Because it assumes the Bible's images in Revelation are predicting some specific figure in the future, way off, 2,000 years, or you know, not quite 2,000 years, let's just say 1,900 plus years, um, that it was actually predicting uh, Putin. All right. The third thing is, is that it, it uh, falsifies the Christian life or discipleship theme in the book of Revelation to a theme of escapism and to relentless vengeance on other people who are godless, whatever word you want to use, and that we believers are going to escape all this stuff. So therefore, we don't have to worry about it. And it fails totally to grasp the fact that the book of Revelation does not teach that the believers are not going to go through some of these things, but that they will be protected during these things. And um, even then, I think it gets too close to predictions. And then the fourth thing I would say, this will be last, I try to teach my students, and this has really helped me over the years in reading the book of Revelation, is that read this book with your imagination the way you read the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter. I don't, but I've never read any Harry Potter, so I don't, I don't know <laughs> if it fits. So, but I do know it fits some of Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia. And by that, I don't strictly mean that this is fiction, but it's sort of like a fiction book, um, fantasy, visionary experiences with all kinds of symbols and dragons and angels zooming and zipping through the air and people striking striking stars and knocking them to earth. I mean, just, just think about that. That, that can't happen. Um, if it does, you know, the whole earth cracks. It's some of the stars are bigger than the United States, you know, the, the world. Um, so Instead of, uh, instead of doing that, I think that we need to be along for the ride and enjoy the basic plot that there are some people of God who are experiencing injustice at the hands of the Roman Empire called Babylon. There are believers who are not living up to their calling as followers of Jesus. And John sees these visions of the fact that someday the Roman Empire is going to fall down. It's going to collapse. And justice is going to be established for the people of God in a new world that he calls the New Jerusalem in a really grotesque image of a thousand mile square cube landing on Jerusalem, which is not exactly flat. So that's... Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the things I really liked, and I'm glad you brought it up too, uh, one of my favorite parts, well, I have two favorite parts in your book, but one of my favorite parts was uh, the, the playbill and yeah. the breakdown of the characters. And for me, that, that did help shape things in understanding Revelation a little bit better, because if you know who's who and who's doing what, it does change and, and remove from the idea of, okay, what am I speculating into this? It takes you out of yeah. that realm. 
um, yeah. and puts you into yeah. like the real focus of it. Um, but one of my favorite, and this is my favorite part. And I think this really, th this was one of those mind blowing moments for me where I was just like, oh, I've never understood this this way, even though I've read this verse several times was when you got into who Jesus was in the lamb character. And uh, when you talked about uh, Revelation chapter one, verse one, when it was the testimony, this is the testimony of Jesus. This is who he is. So uh, really, I guess my, my question with it and, and what I'm trying to say is like, I really feel like we just don't understand verse one and two of Revelation. And that really messes up our whole perspective of it. Well, yeah, I mean, that would be, I think, I think, uh, Chris, uh, you know, I want to call you David because of that singer on. Yeah. David, wasn't it David Archuleta? Yeah. Yeah. I actually went to um, the eye doctor one time and they thought I was David Archuleta just using a fake name, uh, Chris <laughs> instead. And I was like, nope, it was, it's just regular old me. Not, not a good singer at all. Um, I think the problem with one, one and two, one, three, actually, um, is not that text, even that we misread it, is that we impose all our view of the book of Revelation on it before we even get started. Hmm. So we begin to misread it because of what we expect this book is going to be about. But um, John begins with, a, with an ambiguous expression that the NIV, I think, over-translates. John just says the revelation of Jesus Christ, or a sort of Jesus Christ revelation, apocalypse. And the NIV translates as the revelation from Jesus Christ, which is okay, uh, which God gave him, so it's like a chain, which God gave to Jesus to show to his servants. So he gave it to his servants, among whom John would be one. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So it's God to Jesus to the angel, to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the Jesus Christ witness. Uh, and this is another one of these expressions where the testimony of Jesus Christ, what, you know, this is ambiguous in, in Greek. It's the, it's the Jesus Christ witness. It's kind of three words piled, stuck together. And, um, there's something that uh, Jesus is revealing to John that John then is going to have read, and he gives a blessing to the one who reads the, the book and a blessing to those who listen to the book. So that's right there is such a crucial factor in the book of Revelation to anchor it in its real world. It was written by John after having these visions, and it was then given to someone. I assume John is on the island of Patmos, which is a beautiful place. And I tell my students, it's not a bad gig to be in <laughs> exile on Patmos. Really? Didn't know that one. It is gorgeous. And it was gorgeous in the first century. It was not a prison island. So I think he's out there in exile. He's, they try to get him away from, he's dangerous in that area. So they get, get him away there. And then someone comes to these seven churches and has to read this book aloud to seven different churches. And I sort of imagine that when, when who, the reader got to Ephesus, he only read the letter to Ephesus. Uh, he didn't read the other six letters, but I don't know that. I'm just wondering if that is what happened. And then read the rest of the book aloud to the people. And you know as well as I do that first century people heard it, there were a lot of things that they caught because they're first century people. There were a lot of things they didn't catch because they didn't know their Old Testament as well as we do today, didn't have concordances to pop up things and commentaries to tell us and cross-references to tell us to look at this verse and that verse in Isaiah. Um, they were just dumbfounded, I'm sure, as they listened to it. But at the same time, they were hopeful because this text was telling them that someday the oppressive powers of Rome are going down and that the people of God are going to be established uh, in justice. So. Yeah, in that, you started off by saying, going into those few verses, uh, 
we can tend to load in everything that we think that the book is going to be about. Yeah. And you've also already mentioned a couple times that whether it's dating or something else that you've kind of transformed your thinking about the book. Um, I'm just wondering kind of with that in mind that as you went into this fresh study of this book, is there anything that caught you by surprise that it really had to adjust your way of thinking about Revelation and kind of what were those concepts and how did you end up putting that into Revelation for the rest of us? Okay, now here, here's Murdoch. Here's, a, here's a, a Revelation. Okay, I never taught the book of Revelation until just a couple of years ago in oh, the wow. sense of a whole class just on the book of Revelation. Uh, maybe I taught it in a Sunday school class when I was in college, but I don't remember. Um, I certainly read a lot about Revelation in those days. But I would, let's say, when I was teaching at Trinity and when I was teaching at North Park and even a little bit at Northern Seminary, I would have a, a lecture, half a lecture, maybe two lectures on the book of Revelation in my curriculum of courses that, you know, curriculum courses I was teaching. So I, I was always kind of dabbling with the book of Revelation and building up ideas about the book of Revelation. But a few years ago, one of my doctoral students in class said, would you teach, in our next class, would you teach the book of Revelation? And I immediately said, no, I, I won't be able to do that, partly because I knew the next class was not going to be about, it couldn't be about Revelation. It was another kind of class. But I thought, yeah, you know, I would really like to teach the book of Revelation. So a, a, a year or two later, when we were composing our schedule, I asked the dean at the time if I could teach the book of Revelation for one of our curriculum courses called Story, you know, the story of the New Testament, that I would emphasize the story of the book of Revelation. So for uh, almost a whole year, I did nothing but study and work and take notes and write on, on the book of Revelation. I didn't, I didn't even begin to write a book at that time at all. I just wanted to get this class ready. As I was getting it ready, a couple of things really jumped out at me, Murdoch. So this is a good question. I haven't been asked this question about Revelation. The first thing that jumped out for me was the necessity of imagination. Hmm. In order to understand this book, you've got to be able to imagine what the writer is doing. You, you can't take snapshots and drawings of this stuff. That's not what John wants us to do. John wants us to let the image take us where it takes us. So you you have to, in a sense, as John saw in wherever he saw these things, uh, in his mind, in his dreams, wherever, you have to go where he went and let his descriptions take you and imagine what that was. And then imagine how the churches experienced that. Imagine how the Romans who heard about this book thought about what these people were saying. So imagination really came to the fore. And I was thrilled when um, I had a correspondence with Richard Baucom and John Goldingay. And it was just brief, but I, I felt like they really confirmed uh, for me how to understand words like see and hear in the book of Revelation. So that was one of the big ones. Um, a second one was I, I was struck by the number of interruptions in the central section of the book of Revelation, which is from chapter 6 through 16. It's like John can't go three or four paragraphs, well, maybe six, without interrupting with something. And it's to me, I thought, how, how do listeners experience a text? when there are constant, long interruptions. Well, they're distracted from the narrative. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. And I thought, that's what John is doing. As this letter, as this book is being read aloud, it gets really gruesome and dense and intense and heavy. And John doesn't want to just keep unloading these judgments or disciplines, however you want to describe them, against the against Babylon, against the wicked people of the world, he interrupts it with worship songs. He interrupts it with this. He saw this vision as well. And I think that that's for the people of God listening. 
so that they will have categories for their own experiencing uh, of what's going on. They will be able to say, you know, if we worship God, we don't have to worry about this stuff. And that these are interludes and distractions that pastorally comfort the people of God while they're hearing about these disciplines of God against evil in the world. So that was a second one. A third one to me is, is that we have to learn to read this book as a narrative that constantly we have to bring chapter 17 through 19, which is about Babylon, back into early parts. Because this the problem in the book of Revelation is Babylon. Babylon is John's term for Rome and its oppressive ways, its opulence, its domination, its arrogance, all this stuff, military, violence, etc., that's the problem. And if we wait till chapter 17 to figure out that that's the problem, we're going to have to go back and start over and then reread it. So uh, it's important to start there. And then to see Babylon as the problem, which doesn't come up till 17 to 19 that way, then to see that New Jerusalem is the solution. And um, what I, I think is important for me in reading is to catch the book of Revelation well. I have to want New Jerusalem. Hmm. Because if I don't want New Jerusalem, I'm going to be, I'm going to make space for Babylon in my life and in the world. But if I want New Jerusalem, I begin to see the corruptions of Babylon and Rome in this world and the sinfulness and the wickedness and the injustices and then I'm going to say we, we need to get rid of these things. So those were, those were some of the main things that happened to me. And in, in, as I was writing the book, and I was writing the lectures, actually, with my graduate assistant, Cody Matchett, because he was doing so much work on Revelation and he was co- contributing so much to what was going on, we ended up writing this book together. But it wasn't until I told him, when we started the lecture notes and he started working with me, I said, I think this is going to turn into a book. I'm not certain, but I think it will. And uh, by the time the class was over, and he taught a little bit in the class with me, uh, by the time the class was over, we, um, I was already starting to write the book. And I would send sections to Cody, and then he would edit and say, what about this and what about that? And that's how it started. And then we wrote it over the next, oh, I think uh, probably took about nine months to write the book. Maybe, maybe, I don't think it took a year, maybe, maybe 10 months. And uh, then uh, we started editing and chopping and adding and reading and doing some extra reading and adding all the footnotes and everything. So that's, that's sort of how it developed. Yeah, those are some great insights. And it almost seems obvious that a book like the book of Revelation would require our imagination. But yet we've turned it so much into all of the no study, pull out the dates and turn it into this other thing that to just get refreshed. And even when you were saying to read it from the beginning with the end in mind, if it's your first time through, you don't have the end yet. So it's almost like one of those stories that you're like, wait, I need to go back like a movie where there's the twist at the end. You go, I need to go back and rewatch that with this thing in mind so I can actually catch what's going on. So uh, that's really cool insight that that you learned from that. I think one of the the big struggles uh, with reading Revelation is that, uh, because I really liked how you shaped the imagination, but the way you structured imagination was different. It was imagining yourself in their time in their place as a hearer of this this letter being read um one of the things i really enjoyed too was the idea of like people acting it out um as like a like a play and and that really for me that put the imagination to my head uh but i think where we struggle with today is that we put the imagination of our life into the book of revelation we imagine it with the way we want to see it today instead of flipping it and putting ourselves into context. Uh, one of the first things, uh, so I have a Bible that I've just finished reading. Um, I'm going to give it to my son when he turns 18. And as I've started to understand Revelation, I actually saved it for the very end of this journey as I read through the Bible um, and put little footnotes in there for him and wrote it in there. But I saved it for the last book because I did what most Christians do. It was like, I'm just not going to touch that thing. Mm. Um, but when I started learning more about it, I wrote in there, 
for him to remember it's not to me, it was to them, but it's for me. Uh, and that really helped structure my mind as I got into it more. Um, and, and I guess where I'm really heading at is like the big question I think for me is why do us as Americans, why do we struggle so much with reading this book? Great question. Um, because for over a century, dispensationalism, or what Daniel Hummel's new book calls New Premillennialism, has so captured the imagination of American evangelicals and, and everywhere we import our gospel and our beliefs and theology and books and programs and churches and church structures and preachers, um, has reshaped the evangelical fundamentalist world in a certain way of reading the book of Revelation. And as a result, we have, I think, failed the book. And we have, uh, uh, you know, two generations of people that need to be re-educated on the book of Revelation. And <clears throat> my view of the book of Revelation is not something I invented at all. Um, some people would call me an idealist in Revelation rather than a, and, and other people would call me a preterist. I, I tend to think I'm a preterist who thinks the book of Revelation is timeless because of the way it talks about politics, theopolitical imagination. <clears throat> and as a result of that, we, we just have instincts. Uh, you run into ordinary Christians in ordinary evangelical churches, and you read to them a passage in the book of Revelation. A lot of them will just plug it right into a dispensational framework. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've often told many audiences over the years that the genius of dispensationalism was its clarity and simplicity in presenting an entire reading of the Bible, especially the book of Revelation and prophecy, and a capacity to interpret the times, discern the times. It's genius is what it's done. I mean, it's once you read, let's just say, uh, Charles Ryrie's Dispensationalism Today. I don't think it's called that anymore. I think there's a new edition of it. I think it's just called Dispensationalism. Um, or Things to Come by J.D. Pentecost, it, who, who was very big in my day when I was a college student, uh, along with Lewis Sperry Chafer, Systematic Theology. Or you read something more popular like Hal Lindsey or Salem Kurban or Jerry Jenkins and, and Tim LaHaye. I mean, they just complete, they give you a complete perception. Mm -hmm. I know people who really don't read the Bible. They're Christians who go to church, but they don't, they don't give a rep about Christian theology at all, who read the Left Behind series, and now they are totally dispensational in their framework. And uh, it was so easy to explain. Um, and that's what I think the genius of it. And that's why we have trouble reading the book of Revelation is dispensationalism presented such a compelling case for its view. So there's a new book about this by Daniel Hummel called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism that I, I'm reading right now. He's a wonderful church historian at the University of Wisconsin. I don't know if he teaches history there, but he's involved in a Christian group there. And it's just an extraordinary book, uh, and it explains how this whole thing took place uh, in American culture. And it got tied to basically Christian nationalism today. It got tied to American politics, support of Israel, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush. They were totally um, enamored in some ways with Christian eschatology in the dispensational format, and it helped them make decisions about international relations. A guy named Paul Boyer wrote a book, When Time Shall Be No More, in which he traced some of this stuff. So it, it, um, it was a compelling vision that gave people a map for how to understand what's going on in the world. It tied it to America, to Christian nationalism even, to our place in the role of history, our place, the United States' place in uh, the con contemporary political environment. It pinned Russia as an enemy, and Israel became a hero like us, and your treatment of Israel is going to determine your future. 
and whether you're on the two true team of God. And that's a pretty compelling picture for many people. Yeah, that brings in so much of the real world implications of our theology of Revelation and how all that came about. And you're bringing a priory. I know the Schofield Bible and coming in and the thoughts of the rapture and just again what we're going to escape and then who is the enemy and and who and what we should be doing. Um, and I got that flavor that as I was reading your book, that there was definitely um, the sections of using that imagination and let's get in and who's the characters and what's how is this play playing out in terms of just what the book is saying. Uh, but I really appreciated the time that you took. Um, I could definitely see this as a book for Americans, especially mm -hmm. to help bring some of those corrective measures, or as you said, uh, places where we have exported some of that theology out. Um, I think that this could also be super refreshing as a book for people who have maybe been jaded by some of this stuff, who have been around for a while and, you know, heard, heard, oh, this person's the Antichrist, this person's the Antichrist, and here's the date, and here's the date, and this thing's happening, this thing's happening, just going, I've been told so much stuff by the church and through this dispensational framework that's just not working, that when there was so much importance put on those things, I think that this could really bring some some healing to those people as well for as odd as that is to think of going through the book of revelation for healing theology and healing, you know, people's framework for even navigating this world that we live in. Yeah. One of the things I liked too, was that, uh, this whole America always seems to be like the good guy, like yeah, we're the, yeah. the, the heroes to come in and lead the way. Um, but what you really pointed out in the book, and one thing that I was really learning as I started reading Revelation and studying it on my own, um, which is really cool that this whole setup for the interview with you just kind of stemmed at a perfect moment in my life where I was like looking at this book in a whole different way, but a way that I finally understood it uh, more. But the structure you had of it was these letters to these seven churches was uh, John's way of saying like, hey, there's Babylon. And wink, mm -hmm. wink, we know that's Rome, but how has Babylon seeped into the church? And mm -hmm. I guess for us as uh, Americans, Western culture, uh, we want to see us not as Babylon, but always as Israel. Um, yeah. And the, the problem well, comes Jerusalem. in. Yes. And the problem then comes in with uh, we're not looking at how Babylon has seeped into the church. Uh, so I, I know that was a big portion of your book. You, you want to elaborate a little more on that? You know, um, I just um, I'm writing right now. I, I'm writing a series of 16 books for uh Harper Christian Resources, called the Everyday Bible Study, and I'm writing the the book on Revelation right now. So it's kind of fun to now kind of turn around and write a little mini commentary. And I just finished the Seven Churches this morning. So oh, wow! I finished I finished Laodicea this morning. So uh, the big thing is, if you study Revelation 17, 18, and nineteen, especially seventeen and eighteen you can uh, sketch the major characteristics of Babylon. Two of the most major characteristics are that it's idolatrous and that it is, let's say, into opulence, indulgence, sexual indulgences. And then you read Revelation chapters 2 through 3, the seven messages or sermons or letters to seven churches and you realize over and over, these are the sins that John brings up or that Jesus sees taking place in the seven churches. So I now call this, in this new little book, I call it Babylon Creep, is that Babylon is creeping into the churches and John lays, lays it bare. Now, when you get to Laodicea, now you're dealing with uh, opulence and wealth. You know, I am rich, but you're really poor and naked and impoverished, etc. And Laodicea was a very wealthy city. So, um, but the sins that John points out in chapters two through three are the sins of Babylon in 17 and 18. And when you see that, you cannot unsee it, is that John realizes that Babylon is impacting the church. So John is a double dissident, one of the words that we use in the book quite a bit. John wants believers to be dissidents of the way of Rome, the way of the dragon, the way of Babylon, but he also wants to be dissidents within the Christian community and recognizing the presence of Babylon in the church and be dissidents about the invasion 
of the church by Babylon. So he has a, a dual focus of his dissidents. And this is um, this really helps explain it. And it was so fun for me to finish this this morning because I finally got to put it together in a commentary format. I didn't ever teach the seven churches quite that way. Uh, when I was teaching the class, we were teaching themes and trying to teach students how to read the book. And, and both of you brought this up a little bit. A lot of students that I've had uh, felt abused by their youth pastors and their pastors on how to read the book of Revelation. They were kind of irritated that I was going to teach this book. And they're the ones <laughs> who told me they were so, they loved the class so much because it just gave them a completely different reading of the book. And it, it made so much more sense to them. And then they became dissidents of how other people are reading the book of Revelation. But um, it really does make sense when you begin to read Babylon into chapters two and three. And I'm reading a wonderful book on Revelation two through three. I just finished it today, too, by Jeffrey Wyma, Seven Sermons to the Seven Churches, or I think that's what it's called, Sermons to the Seven Churches. And I don't think he quite made enough connection to Babylon, but it's an extraordinary book. Um, and I think I think when Jeff sees what I've done, I think he'll say, it's pretty helpful. I'm glad you brought it up. I wish I'd have seen it. I hope that's what he says. I know that you've gone quite a few podcasts. You've been promoting the book, even as you're looking at, you're still doing new studies for this uh uh, commentary that you're writing and revelation has been on your mind and you've shared a, a lot of really good stuff with us today. I'm wondering, um, is there anything in terms of the book that either you haven't gotten a chance to share yet with, with a broader audience that so you're like, man, I really wish people could get this aspect of what I was trying to pull out of the book or on the flip side of you're saying, I have this audience before me right now. I've told this to every audience. I want to make sure that you get this. So I guess you could think about it in two ways. What would you want our audience to know, whether it's something that you've repeated many times or that you're just like, hey, nobody's really asked me about this part yet? Well, I think the key thing is to say that the book of Revelation provides for Christians a model, a paradigm of how to discern political corruption impacting the church, and that it's not designed so we can figure out who's doing what in the world today, or who's doing, who in the world today is doing what in the book of Revelation. It's designed to give us what I tried to call, but my editor told me it was too fancy of a term for the book, a theopolitical hermeneutic. <laughs> and that is that we have a theopolitical, a divine politics of politics in the world that gives us an interpretive device, a hermeneutic, so that when we look at Washington, D.C., London, Berlin, Cape Town, Johannesburg, you know, where, wherever, that we can, and even in our local village, in our local states, is that we can see what's going on and say, the book of Revelation has taught me that that is Babylon. We need to have discerning eyes rather than political allegiance to a party. And I think that's one of the big things that I think we should learn from the book of Revelation, a theopolitical hermeneutic. I'll use it here because my editor wouldn't let me use it. <laughs> yeah, I like that term. And you spent the part five of your book, Discipleship yeah. for Dissidents Today, really honing in on that. And I'm all about it. You said earlier in the podcast that you feel like there's a couple generations worth that need uh, unlearning for what we've learned about what this is. And I think that especially within America, you brought up uh, Christian nationalism and different stuff that I think that as we get to know this book more, of which your your book is just a vital tool in that, bringing it to this point of, all right, what does discipleship look like? What does it look like for me mm -hmm. to be that double dissident? in my nation that I need to push against Babylon there, but then also within the church. And man, I've experienced it to be a bit of an uphill battle because oh, yeah. there's yeah. thinking that's just so entrenched. Um, so I really appreciate the book and bringing it to that point. It really made Revelation so relevant for today's world in, in so many ways. So I'm going to be highly recommending this and, and well, buying copies you. for people for that purpose. Thank you. I'm sorry. I lied. 
I have one more question and I want to be respectful of your time, but I need to get this answered in a more public setting. Is the rapture biblical? <laughs> no. <laughs> there it is. I'll just take that. that. That's good enough for me. The simple no. <laughs> yeah. I'll be able to point to your authority. It's yeah. I mean, I'm not alone on this. Uh, it's, it's an image of welcoming the king when the the emperor when the emperor arrives going out to meet him so jesus is coming from the skies so we'll go out to meet him but that's all about welcoming rather than hanging out in the clouds forever or for seven years or for three and a half years (laughs) (laughs) yeah thanks so much scott um really uh one of my shifts towards looking at the end times and everything differently was hearing a pastor say uh um, when Jesus talks about, you know, one will be taken, one will be left behind. And then there's that creepy song that I grew up in the 80s from uh, The Thief in the Night, you know, You've Been Left Behind song that mm-hmm. plays into it. Uh, but he said, uh, he, Jesus talks about in the day of Noah, that it'll be like in the day of Noah. When the day of Noah, the, the bad people were swept away while mm-hmm. the good stayed. So he said, maybe we have that all wrong, that we're thinking we're all going to be taken. And I remember hearing that, and it was a pastor I really respected. And I was not happy with it. And I was like, man, this guy's, this guy's wrong. He's teaching some false teaching. But it made me chew on the concept so much more than I had in, in years that I started thinking about it. And it restructured really just where I started landing with how I view end times and, and revelation and everything. And, and it was really that was the, the shift into moving. And then, like I said, Heiser and other things. And now, like, your book is just a phenomenal uh book and resource for us really understanding this in a deeper level. Um, But really all that to just say, thank you, Scott, for writing the book. Thank you for being on our show. Uh, We really appreciated this and really sitting down to talk with you. Uh, Murdoch was not lying. When we first started this thing two years ago, uh, your name was on the list. Um, And it was before N.T. Wright, which hopefully (laughs) if he comes on the show, he'll have to deal with that. But (laughs) it definitely was. And like I said, you helped me so much, even with the Sermon on the Mount, with that, your commentary on it. It was just so enriching. And now, uh, all these years later, I get to actually say that you're the one who, like my notes came from, was Scott McKnight. So I'm finally giving credit to you where it belongs, not just making it seem like I was smart. Um, But yeah, seriously, just thank you so much. We really appreciate this. Thank you. Good to be with you, too. All right. So let's wrap up the show. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm Yerdlich. And I'm Scott. And we are your church friends. Thanks for listening.